Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are starting a brand new series in the book of Philippians, and today's teaching is entitled The Author of Philippians. There are 66 books in almost every Protestant Christian Bible. Of those 66 books, church tradition tells us that 13 of them were written by a man named Paul, who used to be called Saul of Tarsus. Paul is a giant within Christian thought, philosophy, and morality. This giantness of this man is recognized in London, England. One of the most iconic buildings in the great city of London is St. Paul's Cathedral. This building was such a big deal that it was the tallest building in London for 250 years. On this side of the pond, we also recognize Paul's brilliance and influence in our society. The capital of the great state of Minnesota is St. Paul. And if you go visit St. Paul, Minnesota, you can visit St. Paul's Cathedral in St. Paul, Minnesota for a little bit of St. Paul inception. I tell you all this because it's important for us to recognize that Paul is revered in modern Western society. Which raises a question. Who is this man? Who is Paul? And what made him tick? I think that's an important question for us to ask because it directly influences how we perceive the book of Philippians and what it says. I would argue that when you read the thesis statement of Philippians, which we'll get to at the end of this podcast, if you do not know who Paul is, then this thesis statement feels sentimental, cheesy, and inconsequential. But when you read those same words, understanding who Paul was, well, then those same words become meaningful, life-giving, and filled with hope. So today, we're going to look at the author behind Philippians, and we'll end this podcast by reading the thesis statement behind the entire letter to the Philippians. Before we get started, one quick ground rule. Paul used to be known as Saul of Tarsus, and for simplicity's sake, I will be referring to him as Paul throughout this podcast. And when I read verses that have the name Saul in it, I will just read Paul there. It will make things much easier for both you and me. With that in mind, let's turn to Acts chapter 7, where Luke, who is writing the book of Acts, introduces us to Paul. This chapter begins with Stephen, who is one of the early Christians, because everyone was an early Christian in Acts chapter 7, begins to testify before the religious officials about how Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Son of God. Not only that, but Stephen begins to testify that this life of Jesus changes everything about how we perceive God and how we perceive life on this planet. Stephen goes on to say that this man, Jesus Christ, was resurrected from the dead and lives and breathes among us while seated at the right hand of God. These words may seem like a big deal to you as you listen to this podcast, or these words may seem innocuous. But what's important for all of us to understand is that when the religious leaders heard Stephen saying these words, they were deeply threatened, offended, and angry. They were so angry, in fact, that they put Stephen through a trial, found him guilty, and decided he was worthy of a death sentence. We then read in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, 
Luke writes, Then they dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Paul. To clarify that Paul is not an innocent bystander, in the very next verse in Acts 8 verse 1, Luke says, And Paul approved of their killing him. So Paul is a man who is part of a mob who breathes murderous threats and ends up killing a man, Stephen, for his faith. We then go on to read what happens to Paul next. We read in verse 1, That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Paul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. What's important to remember as we read this text is that the religious institution was very much tied to the state institution of Paul's day. In fact, the religious leaders were installed and empowered by extensive powers of Rome. So when we read about the religious officials going around and throwing people into prison, it doesn't make sense when we read it today, but it made perfect sense 2,000 years ago. So Paul was part of this religious police force that was throwing these brand new Christians into prison for their faith. From there, in Acts chapter 8, Luke tells us a story of a man named Philip. And then in Acts chapter 9, he returns to the story of Paul in verses 1 and 2 when he writes, Meanwhile, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. While Luke refers to these as letters, our society would refer to these as warrants. So we read that he receives a warrant to go to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The high priest hears Paul's concern, hears Paul's desire to go and prosecute and arrest these new Christians in Damascus, and they grant him the letters or the warrant to go to Damascus. Paul rallies a posse together, and they agree to go hunting Christians with him in Damascus. But on the road to Damascus, something happens. According to Luke, Paul is surrounded by a bright light, and this light is so intense that it causes Paul to fall to the ground. In the midst of this blinding light, Paul hears a voice from the heavens say, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Paul refuses to answer God's question. Instead, Paul fires back to God with a question of his own. Who are you that is speaking to me? God responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up, Paul, and go to Damascus, and there you will find someone waiting for you. After that, the light disappears, and Paul cannot see. The members of Paul's posse rally around the suddenly blind Paul and guide him by the hand all the way to Damascus. When Paul arrives in Damascus, God appears before a man named Ananias, a Christian who is living in Damascus. God tells Ananias, I want you to find this man, Paul, who is now in Damascus, and I want you to greet him. Now, Ananias is not intimidated by the divine. In fact, he responds with some hesitation. 
Ananias says in verse 11, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. Ananias tells God, I'm not sure if you're aware of this God, but he can arrest me. I don't think it's a good idea for me to go up to this man and greet and welcome him. God hears Ananias' concern and discards it and says, I know what I want you to do. Go to him. Upon this second request, we read in verse 17, so Ananias went and entered the house where Paul was. When Ananias sees this man who has the power to arrest him and drag him back to Jerusalem, he greets him by calling him brother. In verse 17, Ananias says, Brother Paul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias then places his hands upon Paul and scales fall from Paul's eyes and he can see once again. Upon regaining his sight, Paul asks to be baptized in the name of Jesus and he drops his warrant and instead begins preaching that Jesus Christ is in fact raised from the dead. This is stunning to many people in the city of Damascus. The Christians are shocked because they knew he was coming to arrest them. Those in religious power were shocked because Paul was supposed to be on their side. So here's Paul in Damascus doing the opposite of what he set out to do, and it threatened the religious institution in the same way that Stephen threatened his re religious institution. So because of that, the religious institution sought to silence, a.k.a. put to death, Paul. Paul then narrowly escaped from Damascus with his life, and once he was out of Damascus, he asked himself, well, where should I go? And it's here that he turns to Jerusalem, his hometown now, and he says, well, I'll go back there because the disciples will accept me. So he returns to Jerusalem, and in verse 26, we read these words. When Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the Christian disciples, and they were afraid of him. Of course they were afraid of him. This was a man who had been part of a mob that had killed their friend Stephen. So Paul comes wandering into camp. He's like, hey guys, actually I'm on your side now. <laughs> I've seen Jesus. I think you're right. And the disciples' reaction is one of suspicion. We continue to read in verse 26, for the disciples did not believe that he was a disciple. And we probably never would have heard of Paul again, except for the fact that there was one disciple who actually believed Paul and what he said. In verse 27, we read about Barnabas. But Barnabas took him, brought Paul to the disciples, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. The disciples heard their friend Barnabas defending Paul, the man who could arrest them, and believed him, oh, about halfway. I say halfway because they said, that's great. We are hearing words from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is telling us that Paul should go back to his home hometown of Tarsus, hundreds of miles away, and minister for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So the disciples put Paul on a boat and he sails to Tarsus. And I can imagine them wiping their hands clean, thinking, great, we never have to hear from Paul again. But Barnabas is dismayed by this. So dismayed that Barnabas gets on a boat and goes to Tarsus looking for Paul in chapter 11. Once he finds Paul, he takes him with him to another community of Christians in Antioch, Turkey, and says, let's stay here for a while, and it's here, Paul, that you can begin to preach the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Paul and Barnabas stay in Antioch for an entire year until a terrible famine hits the Middle East. Because Antioch is not affected by the drought, what happens is they decide to commission people to go out and share their wealth and resources and food with other churches in the Middle East and eventually with the church in Jerusalem as well, which has been ravaged by this shortcoming of food. The church in Antioch looks around and says, well, who should we send to take these resources to the churches? And they elect Barnabas and Paul. So Barnabas and Paul go from church to church in the Middle East, giving them resources, sharing the wealth of the Antioch church until they arrive in Jerusalem. And it's at this moment that I like to imagine the disciples see Paul cresting over the hill with precious resources from Antioch and thinking to themselves, oh no, not him. How did he find his way back here? We put him on a boat to Tarsus and we thought we were done with him. And yet here he comes back and none of us want him here. Now it may sound like I'm being hard on the disciples and their attitude toward Paul. I'm not. In fact, I have great empathy for what the disciples thought and felt throughout this entire time. After all, these were people who were under an intense persecution from their religious establishment. A member of that establishment was Paul, and he was part of this horrendous sin of mob violence. And he had been part of a mob who had killed one of my dearest friends. So here comes back Paul, and if I was part of the disciples, I would want to keep him at an arm's length as well. So I can't really blame the disciples and their just hesitation, and I would even call it fear of Paul, because I think I would feel the same thing. So when Paul arrives back in Jerusalem in the middle of this drought with precious resources, the disciples begin to pray. And in the midst of their prayer, they are convinced that the Holy Spirit is speaking to them. And because the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, they go to Paul and they said, Paul, the Holy Spirit has spoken to us and the Holy Spirit has come up with a great plan for you. We believe, they told Paul, that the Holy Spirit is calling you to go on a mission trip. Now it's here that I imagine Paul saying, what's a mission trip? And the disciples respond by saying, oh, it's going to be so great for your faith. You're going to go out and see the world and meet people that you've never met because a mission trip is where you go away from here and you testify to the life, story, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the disciples can't wait to tell Paul that the Holy Spirit is guiding him away from where they are. Now, I bring this up because it's also important for us to recognize that Paul has nowhere to go. He can't go back to the religious establishment that he was part of because he's betrayed the faith in their opinion. 
And he can't go to the people who he's found comfort or camaraderie with now because they feel like he's going to betray them at any moment. And so Paul doesn't really have a choice. He has to go away from here. And with all other options exhausted, Paul reluctantly goes on the first mission trip in Christian church history. So Paul and Barnabas board a boat and go to Cyprus. When they arrive in Cyprus, they begin to preach about the resurrected Christ, and they are met with strong apathy. There is not much success that is found on the island of Cyprus. From there, they go to a place called Perga, and then they travel inland to another Antioch, which is in the central Turkey, not the Antioch they were at before. While in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas begin to tell of the resurrected Christ and how God is much bigger than the religious container of Judaism or any other religion for that matter. In fact, during this sermon, Paul tells the people of Antioch Pisidia, the Lord has commanded us saying, I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles, who are all those who are not Jewish, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This was a brand new idea in Jewish theology at the time. The idea that God is here to guide the Gentiles in the same way that God guides the Jewish people. Paul possessed a very real sense that God was God of all, not just God of some. And the resurrection of Jesus had cosmic implications for all of humanity, not minor implications for some of humanity. Well, the people of Antioch Pisidia were intrigued by these two men. They were so intrigued that they invited them back the next day to speak at the same synagogue. But what they did not tell Paul was that they were going to invite a very conservative faction of the Jewish faith to this same hearing, this same gathering at the synagogue. So Paul and Barnabas began to speak, but this faction decided to undercut them, to speak over them, to argue against them. And they divided the crowd, and the crowd became angrier and angrier with Paul and Barnabas for inciting this division. They became so angry that they chased Paul and Barnabas out of town with force. And once Paul and Barnabas reached the edge of the city and were safely out of the hands of the people of Antioch Pisidia, they took the sandals off their feet and shook the dust off so it would not go with them. From Antioch Pisidia, Paul and Barnabas traveled to a place called Iconium. They began to preach and people were very receptive to these ideas of Jesus Christ. But the next day, that same conservative faction from Antioch Pisidia followed them to Iconium. And according to Luke, the same thing occurred in Iconium, except with more violent results. In verse 5 of chapter 14, Luke writes, And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews to mistreat and to stone Paul and Barnabas. In other words, the people in Iconium were trying to kill Paul and Barnabas for the threat that they represented. It was at this moment that Paul and Barnabas decided it probably wasn't a good idea to keep going to the synagogues because people would try to kill them. So then they arrived in a place called Lystra, which is in central Turkey. And when they got there, they went to the marketplace instead of the synagogue. In the civic marketplace, they heal someone and the people of Lystra freak out. They assume that the gods have come to walk among them and they decide that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes. 
In fact, the people of Lystra begin to worship them in response to this miracle. Paul then stands up and says, no, 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 you guys have it all wrong. We are not gods. We are here to tell you about the God who is bigger than any of us. And because these people have not grown up with religious backgrounds of monotheism, Paul talks about the unifying factors of rain and food and sunlight and how God can be experienced through all of those things because God has been present with them in Lystra all along. That, my brothers and sisters, is some innovative theology. But the people of Lystra are apathetic. To make matters worse, the conservative faction all the way from Antioch, Pisidia, hears about what Paul is doing. They show up in Lystra the next day and they decide it is enough and Paul must die. They drag Paul out of the city. They throw rocks at him until they assume he is dead and then they leave him bleeding and broken. But Paul somehow survives. When he is healed enough, he gets back up and runs back into Lystra and continues to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. But this testimony, after being beaten by rocks, still doesn't stick with the people of Lystra. And after some time, Paul and Barnabas decide it's time to go back and give up on the first mission trip in Christian history and return to Antioch. As Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch, they are told that there is a church-wide meeting, the first council of the Christian church, which will be held in Jerusalem. And the main agenda item is whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised if they convert to Christianity. Yeah, if that's not exciting to you, I don't know what is. <laughs> Paul obviously believed that Gentiles were part of the Christian faith, whether they were circumcised or not. So he and Barnabas set off to the south to return to Jerusalem to plead and argue their case. They arrived in Jerusalem. There was a hearing with both sides being represented. And then James, the brother of Jesus, who was the head of the Jerusalem church, stood up with his decision and said, I have come to the decision that we should not make it difficult for people who are trying to follow Jesus. We do not need to circumcise new converts to Christianity. This is a major and beautiful moment in church history and should be repeated often in modern American churches today. We should not make it difficult for people who are trying to follow Jesus. After this monumentous and inclusive church mission statement, the disciples see Paul in Jerusalem again. They pray to God once again and according to the disciples, the Holy Spirit speaks again. They go to Paul and they say, hey, Paul, why don't you go on a mission trip? Because that's where we believe the Holy Spirit is asking you to go. And so Paul gets the message. He says, sure, I'll go on another mission trip. And he heads back to Lystra. Remember the place that tried to kill him. He goes there and he preaches for some time. Then he goes north to the coastal town of Troas. And in Troas, he receives a vision to go and visit Greece. And so Paul and Silas and Luke get on a boat and they travel across the Aegean Sea to a city called Philippi, where Paul establishes a Christian church and will later write a letter to this church that we will call Philippians today. While in Philippi, Paul and Luke and Silas liberate a girl who is enslaved 
And this is met with great rejoicing, except by her slave owner. The slave owner becomes so angry that he gets the authorities involved, and the authorities beat Paul with rods. They throw him in jail without a trial and keep him in jail overnight with his companion Silas. So here Paul and Silas are in jail for liberating a slave. And while they are in jail, they start singing songs. And as they are singing, an earthquake hits the jail cell and crumbles the foundation, but somehow doesn't affect Paul and Silas, and they escape into the night. The very next morning, the magistrates of Philippi find out that Paul and Silas have survived and escape, and they go to them. They're afraid that God is on their side, so they say, hey, 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 let's all just be cool. Why don't you agree to leave quietly, and we'll call it even? Paul is enraged. He tells the messenger of the magistrates these words. The magistrates have beaten us in public, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And now they are going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let the magistrates come and take us out themselves. Luke then goes on to record, the magistrates were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them. Now understand what is happening in this story. Because in Acts chapter 21, Paul is mistaken for an Egyptian. And the Egyptians have much darker skin than the Greeks and the Jews. Because of this, you can imagine that with darker skin wandering around in northern Greece, Paul is viewed as someone who is less than human. They can't imagine that he's actually a citizen of Rome because of the color of his skin. So the magistrates send their police force to go and beat a man without cause and with throw him into prison without trial, all because of the darkness of his skin. I tell you this because white supremacy has been and still is one of the worst sins in the history of global humanity. Paul leaves Philippi on his own terms and then travels to Thessalonica. Things are going well at the very beginning but then a conservative faction of the religious establishment once again finds out about how Paul is trying to combine Jews and Gentiles and they freak out. They're so angry, in fact, that they attack the house that Paul is staying at, of the home of a man named Jason. And Paul escapes under the cover of darkness and splits up from Silas and Luke. Alone now, Paul travels to Athens. And in the shadow of the Acropolis on Mars Hill, Paul delivers one of the greatest sermons ever, and it's met with apathy. From there, Paul travels to Corinth, which is known as a party town, and he is shocked to find that the gospel message begins to stick here in ways it never has on any of Paul's missionary journeys so far. We read in Acts chapter 18, he stayed there a year and six months, 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. And Paul's letters later to the Corinthian church are some of the most influential writings in Western morality. From Corinth then, Paul travels to Ephesus. He likes it so much that he promises he'll be back soon. And then he reports back to Jerusalem at the conclusion of his second mission trip. He is there for just one verse before he tells the disciples. He short circuits their strategy and says, hey guys, I'm going to go on a mission trip because that's where I believe the Holy Spirit is sending me. The disciples respond by saying, great idea, Paul. 
and Paul heads north once again to start a mission trip from Antioch. He travels to Galatia and then arrives in Ephesus, where he stays for the longest tenure of any of his mission trips. We read in Acts 19, he preached in a synagogue for three months, and when he was run out of there, he stayed in Ephesus for more than two years for all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, so that they might hear the word of the Lord. Now, there is some debate as to when Paul actually wrote his letter to the Philippians that we are studying for the month of June. From my studies and my estimation, I think that the most likely time that Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians was while he was in Ephesus. Now, the major problem with this hypothesis is that Luke does not record that Paul ever went to prison while he was in Ephesus. This is important because when Paul writes his letter to the Philippians, he writes from a jail cell and talks about his imprisonment. Because Luke does not record this imprisonment, there are several scholars who believe that this letter was written much later when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, which is recorded later in the book of Acts. However, there are several other scholars who point to an Ephesian imprisonment because there are several events that are in the book of Philippians that only make sense if Paul is writing this from Ephesus. For that reason, I'm going to assume that this letter is written during Paul's stay in Ephesus because the evidence of the events listed in the letter to the Philippians far outweighs Luke's recorded history in the Gospel of Acts told several decades later. And so, assuming that Paul is writing this from an Ephesian jail cell, I think there are four major takeaways we can take from the life of Paul up until this point, and these four things inform the way that we perceive and understand and give weight to the thesis statement in the book of Philippians. So I'm going to hold off on the thesis statement until we get to the fourth point, but let's begin with the first point, about what the life of Paul can tell us about the thesis statement of Philippians. The first point is this. When you look at all three missionary journeys of Paul, you have to consider that the church holds these missionary journeys very near and dear to its heart. The church loves to talk about the missionary journeys of Paul. They love to talk about how Paul went out without fear and proclaimed the gospel in places that the words of Jesus had never been heard. So while the church champions these three different mission trips, it's important for us to read and hear the story of Paul because Paul's missionary journeys occurred only because he participated in mob violence. Imagine for a moment that Paul didn't participate in mob violence. Let's assume he wasn't there when Stephen was murdered by an angry mob. If that's the case, then we can imagine that Paul would just convert to Christianity. He'd show up in Jerusalem to the disciples and say, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And the disciples would say, that's great, Paul. Come, sit around our circle. Here's a drum. Let's sing Kumbaya. But that's not what happened. The disciples were afraid of Paul. And because they were afraid of Paul, they kept praying to God and they kept assuming that the Holy Spirit wanted Paul to be away from them. And so they kept going to Paul over and over again, telling him, God wants you to go away from here. 
And because Paul had no home, he had to agree with them. So he went out to the world and began to preach about how Gentiles and Jews were all created in the image of God. And it was out there that Paul found some sort of spiritual home. My brothers and sisters, we must remember that Paul's missionary journeys occurred only because he participated in mob violence. Now, when we talk about mob violence in America today, we also have to recognize that America has a terrible history of mob violence. Shortly after the Emancipation Proclamation, America experienced an epidemic of white supremacists who would gather in mobs and without any consent of the legal system would take justice into their own hands and lynch African Americans. This is a terrible sin in American history. The sin became exponentially worse when white law enforcement refused to investigate or prosecute these acts of mob violence because then they would have to go after their own. To make matters even worse, there was no national recognition of the horrendous evil of these mob murders until the fall of 2018, when in Montgomery, Alabama, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice opened its doors for the first time. In the main exhibit hall of this memorial, there are 805 stones that are the size of coffins. These stones represent the 805 known counties where lynchings occurred. Each stone is engraved with the name of the county, and every known victim who suffered from lynch mobs is also engraved on that stone as well. In that hall alone, there are over 4,300 victims who were lynched between 1877 and 1950. The National Memorial for Peace and Justice reminds us of the horrendous sin of mob violence. I tell you all of this because when we talk about the life of Paul, we must remember that Paul's story begins rooted in the horrific evil of mob violence. He participated and approved of one of the worst things that human beings can do to each other. And when I look at the history of lynch mobs in America, I think there is this rush to forgiveness of white ancestors by the white community because we don't want to remember the victims and those who suffered through mob violence. I have found that it is the same thing when we consider the life of Paul and Stephen. Whenever we talk about Paul, we must remember the life of Stephen. And whenever we remember the life of Stephen, there is a question that begins to form in our minds. As we remember Stephen, why do we forgive Paul? And if the only reason we forgive Paul is because we have forgotten Stephen, well, then we need to re-examine our faith and why we study Paul today. And this is the first idea that we have to talk about before we get to the thesis statement of Philippians. Whenever we study Paul, we must remember Stephen. Otherwise, Philippians comes across as sentimental cheese. The only way to find any gravity in the words of Paul in Philippians 
is to remember the life of Stephen and the horrific evil that precluded this letter being written. This brings me to a second point about the life of Paul. Paul should have gone to jail for being part of a vigilante justice mob that murdered Stephen. By our ethical standards today, this is immoral and should be punished, and yet Paul walked away as a free man. But when you contrast this with the story that took place in Philippi, which is Paul liberated a slave and then was thrown in jail by the slave master, well, we don't think that should be punished by our standards today, right? Not only that, but Paul was thrown into jail at least two other times, most likely more. And there are times it seems that Paul should have been thrown in jail and wasn't, and there's times that Paul seems he, that he shouldn't have been thrown in jail, and he was. The reason I tell you all of this is because regardless of whether or not you think Paul deserved to go to jail, we must remember right now that as we read Paul's prison letter, that we are reading the words of a criminal. And when I consider evangelical America today, who by all accounts loves the writings of Paul, I don't think evangelical America admits often enough that Paul was a criminal, an enemy of the state. Not only that, but evangelical America has a real hard time sympathizing and listening to and championing the voices of prisoners. Some of the harshest, most legalistic people I know are evangelical Americans. Not only that, but we are making more and more prisoners at alarmingly rapid rates. I recently read a study by the Urban Institute called A Matter of Time, which was released in July 2017. In this study, they found that in California in the year 2000, 6.7% of our prison population was serving a sentence of 10 years or longer. 14 years later, in 2014, in the state of California, that number jumped up to 25% of our prison population is now serving a sentence of 10 years of lo or longer. 6.7% to 24.8%. We are handing out longer and longer sentences to our prisoners. And the message from California to our prisoners is, once you break the law, we want you to go away for a long time. We don't want to see you. We don't want to think about you. And we sure don't want to hear you. Which is really strange because within California, there are a lot of Christians who then turn around and read the words of a criminal, of a prisoner, and say, see, we can find so much wisdom from our criminals in society. And the story of Paul is a story that begins with horrendous, unforgivable violence. And yet somehow this guy manages to turn his life around, recognize that what he did was wrong, and while there are consequences for him because of what he decided before, he goes out and lives a life of humanitarianism and justice in the most unlikely of circumstances. I point this out because when we talk about who Christians are today, Christians will often champion the life of a criminal and the ability to turn it around and then vote overwhelmingly in favor of the death penalty. There's a question we need to ask which is what kind of life are we asking criminals to live after they have been convicted? 
Are we only interested in punishment? Or is there some kind of rehabilitation we owe all of our prisoners in an attempt to bring them back into society no matter how bad the crime is? What kind of life are we asking criminals to live after they have been convicted? Because most Christians I know who love Paul, if given the opportunity to preside over Paul's case not knowing who Paul is, would send Paul away for life in prison. But my brothers and sisters, what we must remember when we read Philippians is that the life of Paul challenges us to change the way we treat our criminals. To believe that there is good in people even when they have done horrendous evil. Which brings us to the third point about Paul's life before we read the thesis statement of Philippians. When you look at the fact that Paul was continually told by the disciples to leave, to go, to go somewhere else, we have to remember that Paul was a pariah. Paul was not the Pope. He was a wandering outsider. He was not someone who was in power. This is very easy to forget when you go and visit the capital city of Minnesota. It's very easy to think that Paul was the Pope when you go to London and see the giant cathedral named after St. Paul. We must remember that Paul was an outsider and a pariah. After his death, it was then that Christianity adopted and institutionalized Paul. And when you look at church history and how the church has used the words of Paul, we have to remember that when Christianity institutionalized Paul, Paul's words became immensely destructive. If you don't believe me, speak to members of the queer community, speak to women, and speak to African Americans whose ancestors were held in bondage with the justification of Paul's words. So when Christians read Paul's words in America today, we treat him like the Pope. Because Paul is in the Bible, people assume that Paul had some sort of authority to oversee all of Christianity and lay out what was moral and what was immoral. But that's not who Paul was. Paul was anti-establishment from the beginning. He continually rallied against the decrees of the church. He continued to fight for people who were oppressed and forgotten on the sides of Christianity because he was out there by himself as well. And what most Christians forget is that if we could somehow have Paul on this podcast, we could ask him questions about his letter to the Philippians. We might ask, Paul, tell us about your intent behind the letter to the Philippians. To which I imagine Paul on this podcast would respond by saying, you're reading my letter to the Philippians? And we'd say, yeah, Paul, it's in the Bible. And I think he would respond by saying, my letter to the Philippians is in the Bible? How did you guys get a copy of that? And after some conversation, we would keep prodding Paul and saying, like, tell us what you meant by this letter. And I think that Paul would lean in closely and say, like, uh, I can't remember what I said in Philippians. Can you tell me what I said? Because it was just a letter to a community. And when we read the book of Philippians, we have to remember that it was not intended for us to read. It was intended for the Philippians, which is why we call it Philippians. 
Now, all of this raises a question that we have to ask. Why do we give Paul's words authority that these words were never intended to possess? Paul never once sat down with the intent to write a moral code that would stand for all time for people across multiple cultures and generations. And yet that's how we read Paul. We assume that that's what he was trying to do, even though we have no evidence that's what he was trying to do. The third point we need to make before we open the book of Philippians is we need to deinstitutionalize the life and writings of Paul. Paul was a protester. He was not the president. Paul was a pariah. He was not the pope. Paul was powerless. He was not the one in power. So with those three things in mind, we can look at the fourth point that we need to make about the life of Paul. But only after we read the thesis statement of Philippians, which can be found in chapter 1, verse 6. One last thing to note before we read this verse. Back in Paul's day, when you were in prison, the state would not provide you with meals. So every prisoner was dependent on either visitors or other people outside of the prison sending them money and or food so that they could survive while they were in prison. The reason why Philippians was written was because the Philippian church, hundreds of miles away from Ephesus, heard that Paul was imprisoned and they sent a messenger to the Philippian jail with food and money to sustain and nourish Paul while he was in prison. Paul then writes Philippians as a thank you letter to a community who remembered him when he was in prison, which leads to the thesis statement behind this letter. He writes, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Paul believes that this life is good and this life is getting better. Now that may seem cheesy or sentimental or shallow to you, but when you consider all that Paul has been through, the highs and the lows, the unjustified beatings and the murder of others, the rejection of the disciples and the acceptance of the Christians in Philippi, the apathy of the people in Cyprus, and the overwhelming joy and receptivity of the people in Corinth. When you look at all of the frightening and beautiful moments of Paul's life laid out in his missionary journeys, he has this overwhelming sense that this life at its core is still good and that somehow this life is only getting better. This testimony of a thesis statement is written not through rose-colored glasses from an ivory tower, but instead from a broken and limping body who still finds beauty in the midst of suffering. And when you consider what kind of courage and strength and faith it takes to write something like those words, there is a question that arises in our mind. When you look at all that is happening in your life, what do you see? 
Do you see how it is good? And do you see that you have reason to hope? Because all of the heartaches that you have been through, Paul has been through something similar, and he somehow had the faith to see it all as good. And in the face of terrible suffering, Paul still found love that reminded him of the beauty of being alive on this planet. My brothers and sisters, what Paul is telling us with this thesis statement is through all of these missionary journeys and uncertainties, Paul has found that God is with us in this beautiful and flawed world. May you and I have the courage and the faith in the inspiration to find God and love and beauty and hope in the midst of the suffering of this planet. In other words, may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.